From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. When we see our doctor, we hope that they are thinking only about providing us with the best possible care. What those who aren't in the medical profession often don't realize is that there are many outside forces that affect how our doctors decide which treatments to prescribe. In the field of health economics, researchers study the behaviors of individuals, healthcare providers, public and private organizations, and the government to determine how those behaviors affect their decision-making, and ultimately, the care we receive. On this week's episode, we talk with Dr. Anupam Jenna, who is a Ruth L. Newhouse Associate Professor of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School and a physician in the Department of Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is also a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. As an economist and a physician, Dr. Jenna's research involves several areas of health economics and policy. He studies the economics of physician behavior and the physician workforce, healthcare productivity, medical malpractice, and the economics of medical innovation. His work has been published in leading journals of medicine and economics and been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, and other prominent news outlets. In 2013, Dr. Jenna received the NIH Director's Early Independence Award to fund research on the physician determinants of healthcare spending, quality, and patient outcomes. Hello, Dr. Jenna. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, Your research involves several areas of health economics and policy. How did you get involved with this type of research? No, I uh, I studied economics and uh, biology in college, and I knew I wanted to go into research after after college. And I moved to Chicago, and I studied there. I did a PhD in economics and went to medical school there, and that was really the beginning of my interest in doing health policy and health economics research. I think economics is a fascinating field because it's really premised on trying to understand why it is that individuals make the decisions that they make among other things that economists study, but that's a, that's a major area. And if you think about areas where decision-making could be really difficult or where uh, there are forces at play that um, have large impacts on people's lives, health is one of those places that comes to mind. When people are sick, decision-making is difficult. Doctors who have to make decisions about what kinds of care to provide have to do so in really uncertain environments where they don't necessarily know what will work and won't, what won't work. Uh, healthcare is expensive. So for all of these different reasons, it really lends itself to an analysis with an economic lens. Um, much of your research is focused on the behavior of the physician workforce, healthcare, productivity, and medical malpractice. Um, one of your studies about malpractice looked at a unique way in which doctors respond to malpractice by buying bigger homes. Can you tell us about this study? Yeah, that's that's a strange one. So let, let me premise, uh, actually give you a preface for that. Uh, about five years ago, we published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, which uh, used data from a very large professional liability insurer. So this is an insurer that offers malpractice policies to physicians. We had data on about 40,000 physicians, and they were followed for, on average, about 10 to 15 years. And what we saw in that data 
was that by the time a physician retires, the likelihood that they face a malpractice suit is almost 100% if you're in a high-risk specialty, which is I would just define as the top half of specialties. If you're in a low-risk specialty, the probability of facing a malpractice suit by the end of your career is about 70%. And those are extraordinarily high numbers. And this is really why I think doctors are very vocal about malpractice and um, how it influences their their practice because malpractice really is a salient concern for them. So that's kind of an important fact to understand about malpractice and the physician that that rates of malpractice, particularly when viewed over uh, a physician's career, are really high. So what is this business about buying you know bigger houses? When we published that paper, I spoke to someone, uh, I spoke to a physician in Florida who shared with me the following uh, story, I'll abbreviate it, but basically what he said was that in the state of Florida, uh, if a physician is sued, uh, the the patient and the attorney who are suing the, the, the physician cannot go after that physician's home assets. And the reason he mentioned this to me is what he said was that both he and his colleagues were buying bigger homes. They were investing more in their homes because they knew that if they were sued, and if they had to, to make a payment that exceeded what their malpractice policy would cover, that nobody could go after their homes. And so it's a really interesting way in which physicians could respond to the malpractice environment that they, that they work in. And what we did is we looked at data um, on several thousand physicians and non-physicians, and we looked at states which offer these protections to, to people and states which do not. So states like Florida and a few others uh, have unlimited homestead exemptions. What that means is that no matter what, if anybody sues you, they cannot go after your, your home assets. And various states have different level, levels of protection, but there are a few states in which it's unlimited. So you're fully protected. And what we found was in those states, doctors spend more on their homes than doctors in other states even if you look at people with the same income. Now, another prediction would be that, well, maybe it's just people in these states are buying bigger homes. It's not really an issue of malpractice. It's just that in states like Florida, people buy bigger and, and more expensive homes. Well, if you look at lawyers and engineers and uh, businessmen with the same incomes as these doctors, who have the same family size as these doctors, who are roughly the same age and sex as these doctors, they don't spend more on their homes in these states with unlimited protections. And so it really does raise this possibility that doctors are responding to malpractice in this quirky way. They're buying bigger homes in states like Florida to insulate themselves from, from being sued. I think the consequence of our study of, of whether or not doctors buy bigger homes as a result of malpractice is really to exemplify that when we're thinking about how malpractice affects the practice of medicine, we typically focus on things like healthcare spending, malpractice premiums. These are things that are really straightforward, if not uh, difficult to measure in some cases, but more or less well, um, well identified routes in which physicians could react to malpractice. But the fact is that physicians probably rank malpractice being among the top two or three, if not the most important factor for them in, in, in their practice. And so it's not, it's not surprising then that you would see it really bleed over into the other aspects of their life. Another of your studies has looked at defensive medicine and whether it works. 
what is defensive medicine? Oh, that's, uh, <laughs> defensive medicine is something that's salient to most doctors, but the, the idea behind defensive medicine is the following, um, that a doctor would order extra tests and procedures, ask other physicians to weigh in on what's going on with the person they're seeing, doing all of these things because they're worried about the risk of, of malpractice liability, and they order these tests to reduce that likelihood. That's the whole idea behind defensive medicine. Uh, it's important to realize what defensive medicine is not. Uh, if malpractice, and the, if the malpractice system leads doctors to order more appropriate tests for a population, for example, if malpractice incentivizes doctors to order colonoscopies for for men for whom it's appropriate, we wouldn't call that defensive medicine. That's actually appropriate medicine, and that's the goal of the malpractice system. But defensive medicine really refers to care that is motivated by the threat of litigation, and that is considered to be clinically wasteful. So there's no real clinical benefit to doing it. Uh, if you ask doctors whether or not they practice defensive medicine, there are several surveys on this, but most of them range between 60 to 80% of doctors reporting that they practice defensive medicine. If you look at the dollar sums involved uh, in, the United, <coughs> excuse me, in the United States, uh, probably $40 billion uh, in, in healthcare expenditures stems from malpractice in defensive medicine. So it's a sizable chunk, though it's small in comparison to total healthcare spending. But malpractice in defensive medicine is one of those things that doctors talk a lot about. And one of the questions that we had um, about a year ago was, does defensive medicine even work? And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, could it be the case that doctors report practicing defensive medicine because they want to lower their risk of, of being sued, but that it doesn't actually work for them. It doesn't actually lower their risk of being sued. And the reason that you might think that is that many people have argued that whether a doctor gets sued or not is about a few things. One is whether or not an error is made, which is important, obviously. And then two is, how did the patient and the doctor interact after that error is made? What was the nature of the relationship? If it really is all about communication, then whether you spend more or less, you wouldn't think would influence your likelihood of being sued unless it affects your, your likelihood of actually making a mistake, making an error. And so we looked at this question. It's a difficult question to look at and, look at, and no one has really thought about it, but we had really unique data from the state of Florida where we had data on several thousand physicians. The information for each physician uh, was the following. We knew whether they had been sued, when they had been sued, what was the result of that lawsuit. And we also had clinical information for these doctors. So we knew who were the patients that they were treating, uh, what were the characteristics of those patients, how much was spent on those patients. And what we were able to do with these two pieces of data were compute a profile for whether or not a doctor is a high-spending doctor or a low-spending doctor, and then see, within a, within a specialty, say within internal medicine, whether or not doctors who spend more actually get sued less often, because that is the premise of defensive medicine, that if you spend more, if you order more tests, uh, order more imaging, that you can uh, lower your risk of being sued. And we were able to study that question directly. And what we found was two things. One is that within any given specialty, doctors who spend more get sued less often, which would be supportive of this of this idea that defensive medicine could work. And the second thing that we found was that even if you look at the same doctor over time and find instances in which that doctor spent more versus less, 
the years in which he or she spent more money on patient care, they were less likely to get sued than in years when they spent less. And again, this is not bulletproof evidence that defensive medicine, quote unquote, works from the doctor's perspective, but it does support that view. And, you know, I'm an economist from the University of Chicago, so I'm, I'm left with the question, well, could it really be the case that 60 to 80% of doctors report practicing defensive medicine, but that it doesn't actually work for them? And I think if you think about the question in that way, maybe our findings aren't that surprising. You've also done research in areas outside of healthcare professionals. One was in relation to stress of politics on those elected or not elected to office. What did you observe and how was this done? And so if you, if you look at photos of Presidents Obama and Clinton, I think the defining feature of any photo of, the, of, of those two over the last, let's say, uh, in, in their eight-year tenures, was that they appeared to have grayed considerably. And a lot of people have speculated that they grayed or they aged more quickly than they would have had they not been president. And the, the reason for that is that being president is extremely stressful. It's, it's stressful because of the decisions that have to be made, um, the amount of work that has to be done, probably the lack of sleep that is entailed. So all of these things could very reasonably lead someone to age more quickly. And the question that we set out to ask is, well, is there any evidence that that actually might be true? Now, it's a difficult question to study because if you look at the observed life expectancy of presidents and prime ministers and chancellors, any world leaders, what you will find is that they live longer than the average population. And that's not surprising. Look at Jimmy Carter. He's got world-class cancer therapy, whereas people in the general population may not have received that same kind of care. So there's a lot of reasons why world leaders should live longer than the general population. But that's not the question. The question is, will Obama live as long as he will live had he not been president? In other words, had world leaders not been world leaders, how long would they have lived? And the way that we looked at this question is we collected data on about 500 world leaders uh, throughout history over the last um, two centuries. And what we did is we looked at people who were elected versus people who lost the election. And what you see is that, that if you win an election and become leader of a country, that takes about two and a half to three years off your life compared to the runner-up candidate. And the basic idea here is that runner-up candidates were very similar socioeconomically as those who won the election, but they happened to lose and they therefore happen to not be exposed to the stress of being a world leader. And so that stress, that toll, is about two and a half to three years of life. So relating this to the, to the last election, I think a really fascinating uh, piece of information is that Donald Trump, I believe, is the oldest president to be inaugurated. And even had he not won, this election was really unprecedented because of the, uh, the advanced age of both the Republican and Democratic uh, candidate for presidency. How do you come up with ideas for your research? I think that's actually the most difficult question to answer. Um, you know, part of it's my training. Economics as a discipline has really um, put it um, put a premium on being creative and thinking of interesting questions and and novel ways to approach questions that others have thought about. So part of it's the it's the disciplinary training. I think part of it's who my mentors were in graduate school. Uh, one of my thesis advisors was a guy named Steve Levitt who wrote Freakonomics. And, you know, his way of thinking is something that I've really um, kind of become attached to. And I 
characterizes a lot of a lot of my work. I think the third thing is that uh, being creative is an active process. It's you know it, it is the case for me now that I'll see things and they'll uh, raise ideas in my mind. Um, but you know, with graduate students and students, what what I try to do is ask them to come to me with a couple of ideas every day, no matter what the idea is, just to push them to to think like that. Or we will sit in front of a computer and and open up the New York Times webpage or Yahoo News webpage and say, okay, what, what's the first idea that comes to your mind in the next five minutes? And really pushing to think in that way. So, I mean, you think the inauguration just happened. So, like, what's the, what are the questions that come to your mind? Well, the inauguration is really busy in D.C. Does mortality go up because people can't get to the hospital? Uh, because there's so much congestion? Interesting question. We could look at that. These are the kinds of questions that interest me. This is the way I kind of think about the world. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Jenna. It has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Next time on Think Research. We wanted to ask a series of questions from patients at the start. Why did they have those exceptional responses when others didn't? Or to find people that had been diagnosed at very young ages. How come? Is there something different about the DNA? Over time, we realized that by asking patients to tell us about their experiences with metastatic breast cancer, we could identify needles in the haystack. We talk with Dr. Corey Painter about how direct-to-patient initiatives are changing cancer research. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. research.